we're reading from Exodus 20, verse 18. So when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dress stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, or your private parts may be exposed. How many of you watch Question of Sport or have done from time to time? A good number of you. Yeah, a good number of you. I think if you speak to one another after the service, you can probably age most people by asking who their favorite team captains are. So I'm in the, the Bill Beaumont and Ian Botham generation before John Parrott and uh, Ali McCoist took over. You chat with each other afterwards, you can work out pretty much how old you are by reference to your favorite team leaders. And for me, watching it, it wasn't just about the episodes. It was precious time with my dad. Um, we used to sit together and watch this program and battle with each other to see if we could beat the contestants to work out who the mystery guest was or to watch the observation round and see whether we could pick up more things than the rest of the team could pick up. But my favorite round of all was what happens next. Now, before stories on Facebook and everything else, that was quite a novel thing. Nowadays, it just is everywhere. But in the good old days and before, and for those of you who've perhaps not seen the TV program, uh, what would happen is you'd get a short clip of some sporting event that would then get paused and both teams had to decide what happens next. And as with any good dramatic production, it was always predictably unpredictable. So it would be like the kind of rugby shot that is kicked miles away from the post, bounces off a passing seagull and happens to go through. Or the gymnast who's in the middle of their routine and something snaps, goes flying in the air and lands in the chalk bucket. It's that kind of completely unpredictable what happens next. And in a much more important way, our text this morning asks, what happens next? And it's not quite what we'd expect either. Um, if you've got your Bible in front of you and you just flick through the remaining 20 chapters of Exodus, we have got a lot more laws and commands to come. But that's not what happens next, immediately after God gives the Ten Commandments. What happens next is God shows us how we're to respond to him. It's not only that we need to learn what is true. We also need to learn how to respond rightly 
to what is true. And we're going to spend most of our time here in that big idea, which is essentially verses 18 to 21. And then at the end, we're going to see that in all of our responses, which we do imperfectly, God pours grace upon grace when we get to the altars in 22 to 26. But we're going to spend most of our time this morning in that first section where we see that the right response to God is to rightly fear him that we would obey his commands. To rightly fear him, that we would obey his commands. Now, let's put all of that in context so that we can understand just how big a deal all of this is. You look back in verse 1. God himself is the one who has been speaking on Mount Sinai, and everybody's heard it. We lose sight a bit of that in Exodus. We get a bit of it in verse 22, where we see God saying, uh, you... uh, God says, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. But you could have got all the way through Exodus 20 and thought that God was having a private conversation with Moses. So if you've got a Bible, just flick over to Deuteronomy 5, which is where just before they get into the promised land, Moses retells the story of what's happened in Exodus 20. And I want you to hear how this unfolded. Deuteronomy 5. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all of the leaders of your tribes and elders came to me and you said... The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. But now why why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go. They say to Moses, go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. God didn't have a quiet chat with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. The living, all-powerful creator bellowed from heaven. And the people were terrified. And they weren't only responding to his voice. They're responding to his presence too. Which if you're there in that moment is very obvious. Because the people are looking up at this stunning representation of the glory of God. Who isn't limited to the top of any one mountain. But was revealing himself in all that they were seeing there. But in the written record, Moses makes this really deliberate link to the presence of God too. So verse 18, in our English translation, says that there was thunder and lightning. But that word for lightning is a pretty rare word. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He only uses this word for lightning twice. And the other time is back in Genesis when he made his covenant with Abram. If you can remember that, 
Covenant, if you were here, you might remember a rather vivid illustration I used of cutting up various stuffed animals. Remember that? A bit traumatizing for some smaller people. And, and there was the moment when that covenant was ratified with God himself walking between those pieces to say, if I were ever to break my covenant, then this is what would happen to me, to God himself. Be pulled apart because God can never break his word. And if you go back to Genesis 15, verse 17, we're told when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch. That's the same word that we've got as lightning in Exodus 20. That's the presence of God. That blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So what Moses is saying to everybody who's going to read this record in the future, including us, is that what the people are beholding and responding to is not only the voice of God and not only the presence of God, it is the presence of the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who causes people to obey his commands. Now, you go back to Exodus and flip back to chapter 19, and God's people have already said, we're all in. Chapter 19 and verse 8 God's people have said, we will do everything the Lord has said. Well, now the Lord has said. The very heart of all of the commandments of God have been heard by everyone and the ball is now in their court. So what are they going to do next? If I can just pause there for a minute, we need to ask the same question of ourselves. If you were with us last Sunday evening, Matthew made a really challenging call for all of us to see that God is speaking to us today through his commandments. And we too need to think how we're going to respond. This isn't just a history lesson. When I hear for an ethics class, we are submitting ourselves under the ever-speaking and ever-present and ever-covenant-keeping God. So, what happens next in your life? Think about the Jews first. They respond in terrified fear. Let's reread verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. Now instinctively, you might hear all of that and think that's the right response. Because God's awesome and terrifying and God has appointed Moses to be this mediator, this one who is the go-between between God's people and God. And all of that's good. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy again, God tells us that the very things they're saying are good. Back in Deuteronomy 5, the Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I've heard what the people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always so that it will go well with them and their children forever. So a fear that leads to obedience with Moses as a mediator is exactly, exactly 
what God is working towards. The problem is that's not the only thing that's going on. Part of their fear was wrong. In fact, part of their fear was sinful. You look back in verse 18. In their fear, they are being kept away from God. Despite all that they have seen of his covenant love for them in rescuing them from their slavery and preserving them all the way to this point, what are they worried about in verse 19? That God's going to kill us. Can you see the the tension that is brewing here? That's what Moses is picking up in verse 20 when he tells the people, don't be afraid. And then he spells out what is perhaps one of the most important things that God's people always need to hear. Verse 20, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So what's the right way to respond to God? Are we to stop being afraid? Or are we to be so gripped by fear that it changes the way we live? See the dilemma? That is a massive pastoral question. It's a question that so many of you have or are wrestling with. And lots of people who read the Bible are going to wrestle with this question. In fact, one preacher I read this week said that verse 20 is so important, you can't fully understand Christianity without understanding what verse 20 teaches. It doesn't mean you can't be a Christian without fully understanding it. You can't understand all of the beauty of what Christianity is if you can't explain what's going on in this verse. That's what he means. So I want us to dig into this for a minute, and we're going to start by thinking why it's so hard. Why is verse 20 so hard to understand? Firstly, because of how we think about fear today. First words, symbols, ideas that come into your head when you hear the word fear are probably going to be negative things, scary things. And they're going to range. There's a whole big group of us here. For some of you, it's going to be spiders in the shower. Some of you, it's going to be long shadows in a passageway. Some of you, it's going to be a, a dreaded medical diagnosis. For some of you, it's an anticipation of dying. It could be any of those things in and around that enormous spectrum of fear, but all of those things are scary. Then there are other times when we choose to embrace fear. So I love the adrenaline rush of a roller coaster ride. Others of you like going out into the forest in the dark of night just for the fun of being out there. Those things are true, but for most of us, we instinctively think that fear is a bad thing and that there could not be any possible way that that negative fear could be a good thing when we think about God and how we are to live in response to him. And that's perhaps a particular struggle for Christians, New Testament Christians. Because the second thing that we wrestle with when we come to verse 20 is we hear it and think, that's an Old Testament thing. This fearing God thing is something that was part of the Old Covenant, but it's not part of the New Covenant. And partly that's true. It is an Old Covenant thing. So here are three well-known verses, just as an example for you. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
David prays in Psalm 86, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And God himself commanded Job, sorry, commended Job when he said, There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Small sampling, but you get the picture. It is a good thing throughout the Old Covenant to fear God. Ah, you say, but we're not in the Old Covenant, we're in the New Covenant. Yes, but you see, when God explained in the Old Covenant what would be different about the New Covenant, he said that the people of the New Covenant would fear him too. So you get to Jeremiah, one of the great promises and prophecies about the new covenant and God says through Jeremiah they will be my people the new covenant people that's us living after Jesus' work and I will be their God I will give them a singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all go well with them and with their children after them I will make an everlasting covenant with them I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. Now, if you know anything of your New Testament, you know that's exactly what happens when Jesus comes. One of the most frequent responses to the life and ministry of Jesus, to the things that he did and the things that he said, was that people were fearful and amazed. You pick up the same idea when you get into Paul's writings. He said to the Corinthians in his second letter, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's not the old covenant, that's the new. He picks up the same theme when he writes to the Colossians. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service when they're looking at you, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And it's just a small sampling, but you get the picture. This is an old and a new covenant calling. In some way, it is and always has been right for the people of God to fear him. But, but we've also got Moses ringing in our ear. Don't be afraid. And if you have read your Bible, you will know that that command is the most frequent command throughout the entire Bible. You get John building on it in his letter. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So I come back to my question. Are we supposed to fear God or not? How do we reconcile verse 20 with itself and, and with passages like 1 John 4? I would love, love, genuinely love to spend time digging into this question because I think it's a really deep question. But we've got to start moving in Exodus. Um, I did the maths. Um, we've done 12 sermons in chapter 20. And by my calculations, if we keep going at that speed, we're going to be in Exodus for the next four and a half years. So for your good, <laughs> we're going to start speeding up a little. Um, all I can do this morning is, is answer this question directly 
but perhaps more briefly than I would like, and then I'm going to recommend a book for you. So if, if this is a question for you, how, how is it right for Christians to fear God? Isn't that just something that's gone now? And if it is, how do I read the Old and the New Testament that both seem to speak about it? I want to encourage you to read a book to go further. Here's my short summary. When you look at everything the Bible has to say about fear, fear is more than one thing. There is a sinful way to fear, and there is a godly way to fear. Now, if you just look at verse 20, of all the many other things that the Bible can say, you just look at verse 20, sinful fear keeps us away from God. So what happens with sinful fear is we are too quick to forget who God is and what he has done. And we start reshaping God in our minds. Sinful fear has us recasting God as one who is angry and against us. And at the same time as forgetting who he is and what he's done, it is too quick to focus on our sin and our rebellion and forget the Redeemer who has saved us. And that combination of quickly forgetting who God is and what he's done and quickly focusing on our sin and what separates us from him, they have the combined effect of driving us away from God. That's sinful fear that drives us away. But there's a right and godly fear that brings us to God. And I think as Christians in the West... And in many of the churches in the West, we have lost sight of that right fear of coming to God. God doesn't want his people to be afraid of him and stay away, but he does want us to approach him with that right sense of understanding the majesty and the glory and the power and the holy awe that are his. And that should, show, should so grip our hearts that it saves us from sinning. Now, let's just pause there for a minute because if you look in verse 20, it's this link between the fear of God that keeps us from sinning that's right at the heart of what Moses is talking about. We need to recognize that part of what it is to be a creature is that we have been made to fear. Don't like to think about that, do we? But all too often, we struggle because we neglect to see what is particular about our creatureliness because we're not the creator. So I don't mean that in ways that are sinful. I don't mean that Adam and Eve before the fall were fearful in sinful ways. I mean that creatures aren't the creator. And part of what it means to be creatures is to fear in a right way. Now, what happens ever since Adam and Eve's sin is that that good aspect of our creatureliness, which is to approach the one who is the creator in the right way, we've ruined it. As with everything. So how do we fear now? Now, 
we fear other things more than we fear God. Now we fear missing out. Now we fear not being in charge. Now we fear peer pressure. Now we fear what's going to happen when we're discovered for what we've done and we try to cover things up. And all of those heart struggles lie behind so much of our sin struggle because we have made those fears greater than our fear of God. All of those things are a lie. All of those powerful things that work in your heart right now that have been driving you to do, say, or think things through the course of this week, that if you could only have that thing or change that circumstance or make that other person think about you differently in this way and manipulate those things or your life because you're fearful of them more than God, all of those things are a lie. And the only way to counter those fears is to be gripped by a more consuming fear. Chimes very much with what we were thinking about last week with the battle for idolatry. All of those longings to have other things are because we have thought that if I can have those things, I'm greater than God. I know that these will satisfy me most, so I want God less and those things more. The same is true when it comes to our fears. We assume my life is controlled by all of these lesser fears. The only God-given solution is that our life is shaped by the ultimate and right but godly fear of God himself. In the words of an old hymn that we're going to sing later, we need to fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. As a good and right fear for Christians to have, not because God's still angry with us, Not because God might not forgive us. He's already forgiven and justified us, just as he's already rescued the Israelites. But but the awesome splendor of his holiness and of his majesty and of who he is must, must shape how we live in our lives today. Now, please don't mishear me. We are saved by grace alone. Just as God's people have always been saved by grace alone. But obedience doesn't disappear when you get into the New Testament. If you think it does, you're calling Jesus a liar. This is what Jesus himself taught his disciples. If you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is one who loves me. Love is one of the greatest motivations to stop us from running off towards sin. But so too is godly fear. Because the God we call Father is, as we have sung already, the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Now, if that's a question that you have wrestled with, you are wrestling with, um, can I encourage you to read this great book by Mike Reeves called Rejoice and Tremble? I think I flagged it once before. We read it as a staff team earlier this year. It is such a helpful and encouraging book because 
it will fill you with a sense of joy and delight at the privilege of fearing God in the right ways. In the ways that draw you towards him rather than having you fearing that you can't get close to him. Commend that to you. Right, so right response to God is to rightly fear him that we'd obey his commands. But our great problem, just like the Israelites, is that we don't. And there's no surprise in the what happens next to the Israelites, is there? Because we all know their story because it's our story. They've inherited Adam and Eve's sinful nature just like we have. So they are going to hear everything that God has just said and they're not going to hold it before them with the fear of the Lord in their eyes. They're going to pursue sinful things instead. And God knew all of that. Not even the fickle nature of our sinful hearts is going to be a surprise to God. So how does God proactively respond to us failing to respond rightly to him? That's where we are. Verses 22 to 26. He provides them with an altar. He makes it possible, secondly, to rightly worship him so that we can draw near and so that he can draw near and bless his people. It's all about him. Okay, remember where we are, big picture. We just had the Ten Commandments. Look at verses 22, 23. God reminds Moses of at least the first two. Maybe he's reminding him of all ten as he includes them. And, and the very next thing that Moses hears is God providing a way for his people to deal with their sin when they break the laws that he's only just given them. They're the very next words out of God's mouth. This is grace upon grace. I want you to see what a gift this is. Okay? When you think altar sacrifice, tabernacle, sorry, altar sacrifice in the Old Covenant, you're going to start thinking tabernacle before you get to the temple and all of the grandeur of what's to come. But we're not there yet. The tabernacle is going to be chapters later, and it hasn't been built yet. And between now, when they got the Ten Commandments, and then, the Israelites are going to sin loads. So right here, literally after God has just given them the commandments, God says, I know you're going to mess it up. And I do not want you to be far from me. I don't want you in that moment of sin, before we've got to the tabernacle, to think, my sin has separated me from God. I know it has. I've just heard the Ten Commandments. I don't want you, says God, to have that sense of dread that thinks, I now know more than I ever did how serious my sin is and I can't come to him. God says that even before we get to the tabernacle, there mustn't be a day when you live with that sinful fear of feeling you cannot come to God. That's what he is providing for right here, right now. If you've never come across all this weird terminology to you of, of burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, we'll see the detail in what's to come. But God's saying right here, right now, you need to know that your sin can be paid for. That's the burnt offering. And when it's paid for, you need to know that you're forgiven. Your relationship with God is restored. That's the fellowship offering, the peace offering. What God is doing here is he is making it so abundantly clear before we get into all of the other laws and the commands that are to come, that he doesn't ever want his people to drift away from him 
in fear. Verse 24, he wants his people to honor him. We're never going to do that perfectly. God says, I know you're not. And I'm not even going to leave you for a time period, Israelites, between knowing that you've done that and the tabernacle of fearing that your sin is separating you from God and you can't draw near. He is going to give you this means of grace so that you, verse 24, can know that God has come to you and blessed you. See what a staggeringly gracious God he is. And what's even more amazing this morning is that God is even more gracious to every single one of us. Not only do we have the living words of the ever-speaking, ever-present, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God today, we're not relying on daily sacrifices anymore. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow morning, realize that I've sinned and think I need to go and offer another burnt offering before I can have fellowship with God. The sacrifices of all the sheep and the cattle, they were to prepare the way for us to see the one great sacrifice for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to be the once and forever sacrifice for our sin. He's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He is the great high priest who still lives so that we don't need any other priests. He's the one that the book of Hebrews tells us, when this high priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, What happens next for you? Do you know? Do you know with all the conviction that your eternal life weighs in the balance that the Son of God has become the sacrifice you need so that you know now you are being made holy? Because if you don't, right now, the only way you can come before God is seeing the fear of all that the Jews saw on Mount Sinai. And know that the responsibility to pay the just judgment for your sin is something that you will have to bear before God on the day he returns. Jesus came to pay that penalty for you. He came that you would know this day that your sin isn't separating you from God. He came to banish that sinful fear that would take you away from God so that you would know the godly fear of coming to the one who is greater than everything that we could ever imagine. And call him Father. Great God in heaven, we confess that we have too small an understanding of who you are and how we should respond to you.
We pray that our hearts would be shaped by your word and not our culture. We want to grow in our understanding of what it means to be your people, to have been made in your image, to have been redeemed by your son, and now to live through the power of your spirit, to live out everything you teach us in your word. Father, forgive us that we are too quick to belittle your greatness in order that we would only know your love. Father, would we see the magnificence of your love in the enormity of an eternal God made man to take upon himself all of our sin upon the cross in order that we may know that we are your children. May we behold the glory of the unbegotten God and praise you with joy and thankfulness and a right fear for who you are. And may that right fear mark us out as your people. May we not be those who take glibly the privilege that is ours to step into the throne room of grace. May you fill us as your people as we gather Sunday by Sunday and then in all that we do through the week with a sense of the joyful privilege that is ours to know you are our God. Father, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts and press your word into our lives. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we remember what we have seen this morning, that we are not to be afraid. For God has come to test us so that the fear of God will be with us to keep us from sinning. The one who keeps us is faithful and he will do it. Amen.